0: OR lights down, music up and just like rock out for a second just because I see blood flow going back into something that didn't have it and it literally is like Frankenstein coming back to life. You see something that was dead for all intents and purposes and it lights up and it's pink Hear more about this incredible medical procedure that took place at University Medical Center that reattached a man's thumb and saved his love of music, all on the next episode of Better Health in the Borderland, found wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a story about Tyler Croak. He was an army veteran and served in Afghanistan. The 23-year-old survived combat overseas but was murdered in a military-style ambush while he showered at a friend's house in East El Paso.
2: That's just a nightmare in itself, just learning the way that he died. And I just don't know how people can do something like that to another human being. It just does not make sense. You have to be evil. And people like that are just irredeemable.
1: Four men and a woman, some of them former soldiers, were accused of Tyler's murder.
3: Everything's been different since that
1: moment. The Croke family has been waiting a long time for justice. Only two of the suspects have been sentenced since Tyler's murder in
2: 2017. But here we are coming up on five years.
1: Tyler's family thinks the blame for the delays goes beyond the pandemic, right into the judge's chambers. The judge overseeing a majority of the cases is facing his own troublesome legal issues. It's unethical. I don't know how he could be impartial
4: and it's very
1: frustrating
4: that us as victims are scared that we're not going to get justice we
2: feel victimized all over again
1: killing of Tyler Croak in this episode of Borderland Crimes, sponsored by University Medical Center of El Paso. El Paso, Texas is right on the line dividing the United States and Mexico. There's no denying it's a border town. But it's also a military town. El Paso and Fort Bliss have been entwined for decades. The U.S. Army installation has been nestled within the city's limits, bordered by Northeast and Far East El Paso for more than 125 years. And just earlier this year, the army once again reopened the post to civilians. Now, anyone is welcome to visit the movie theater, restaurants, and shops at the mall on post. Many soldiers, both single men and women, and those with spouses and kids, live beyond bliss and make their homes in all parts of the city. When it comes to crime involving soldiers, though, what happens on post typically stays on post. But on May 7th, 2017, something terrible involving a soldier happened off
0: post and it made headlines. Start with breaking news this morning. El Paso Police are investigating a homicide in East El Paso. Right now, officers have blocked off the area on the 1500 block of Loma Land. Police say that around 1.30 this morning they received a call about a disturbance in that area and when they arrived at the Cantera apartments, they found a man dead inside an apartment. Police say there appeared to be a fight, but they have not yet said how the man died. Even
1: though El Paso police didn't identify the victim to news reporters until more than a week later, they learned that day he was 23-year-old Tyler Caden Croak, an Army vet who had been assigned to Fort Bliss since 2014. His parents, Kirsten and Matt Croak, live in Salem, Virginia. It's a small town, about 25,000 people, a roughly four-hour drive southwest of Washington, D.C. They learned about their son's death when an El Paso police detective called them.
2: I saw it was an El Paso number that I didn't recognize. I knew that the 915 area code was for El Paso.
1: I talked with Tyler's mom, dad, and younger sister Rory via Zoom about that gut-wrenching moment. Before she started telling her story, Kirsten told me she wasn't sure if she'd be strong enough to recount all the details from
2: that day. I was concerned. I, there's no other person that was going to call me from El Paso besides Tyler. And it wasn't his number. So I let it go to voicemail. And it was from a detective Garcia, and he said he needed us to call him immediately. And so I didn't know, we didn't know if Tyler had an accident, if he was arrested. We had no idea why a detective would be calling our home. so I asked my husband to call
0: him back. I didn't want to call him. Yeah, and I mean, you can just imagine that call is just how you would imagine that call would go. He, and and I could tell by it immediately. You know, my mind was racing like, he, you know, he, he asked if I was my who I was. I said, yes. And then he identified himself and then um, asked if Tyler I was, My mind was racing at that point because I was so nervous that I was hoping he would say, like, a wrong middle name or, you know, something that I could go, no. But of course, it was a yes. And um, he just said that he was sorry to inform us, but our son had passed.
1: Tyler's parents were heartbroken based on their conversations with their son in the months leading up to his death. They'd been deeply concerned about his well-being, his behavior, and his mental health. And I'll get into why their instincts were right on. But what magnified their grief was when they learned how their oldest son was killed. That information came out when police made numerous arrests two weeks after Tyler's death.
3: Apostle Police have arrested five people
2: they say took part in a murder earlier this month. The suspects are identified as 21-year-old Tristan Chilton of Socorro, 20 year old Stephanie Fernandez of Socorro, 27-year-old Brandon Olson of Las Cruces, 20-year-old Zachary Johnston of Fort Bliss, and 19-year-old Adam Acosta, also from Fort Bliss. Police say the suspects worked together to stab the victim in the neck.
1: Police laid out what happened in the complaint affidavits for the five suspects. Someone called police around 1.30 in the morning on May 7th, 2017. That caller lived at the Canteta Apartments on Lomaland. She told officers she'd been awakened by heavy footsteps in the apartment behind hers. She then heard a man's voice through the wall. She could hear that man pleading for his life. Police went over to the apartment. No one answered when they knocked, but when they checked the knob, it turned easily. Right when they walked in, officers knew something was wrong. They saw a man lying on the floor, naked, blood pooling around him. They could see he was stabbed in the neck, and the place looked like the site of a major brawl. Investigators began asking apartment residents if they noticed anything unusual that night. Turns out, someone had seen four people get into a black SUV idling in front of the apartment, with someone waiting behind the wheel. Police found images of that SUV on the apartment complex's surveillance system, and they traced the license plate to Tristan Chilton. Investigators soon tracked down Tristan to his house in Socorro, in the Far East part of the county, and they pulled him over on a traffic violation once he drove into El Paso city limits. Stephanie Fernandez, his girlfriend, was with him. What they told police about the hours leading up to Tyler's death and how he died is all in official documents. And Stephanie's account of what happened is incredibly detailed, disturbing, and violent. This wasn't some random crime. And Tyler Croak, Stephanie Fernandez, Adam Acosta, Brendan Olson and Zachary Johnston weren't strangers. Tyler and Stephanie knew each other through a mutual friend named Dale Walby. Stephanie and Dale had dated before. Dale and Tyler met at Fort Bliss and in Tyler's final days, they were roommates. Tyler met Stephanie through Dale. Tyler, Brandon Olson and Zachary Johnston were all stationed at Fort Bliss at the same time, but their encounters were rocky, based on court documents. In fact, Brandon had accused Tyler of stealing his new car, crashing it, and then abandoning it. Based on what Stephanie told police, she was working as a prostitute to make money. She accepted a loan from Brandon Olson, Zachary Johnston, and Adam Acosta in order to stop sex work, but she couldn't pay them back. The three men told Stephanie she could clear her debt by telling them where Tyler was and where he kept his drugs. They wanted to rob him of his supply. They said Tyler owed them a tax on the pills he was dealing. In fact, in the weeks before his death, Tyler had told Stephanie he heard Brandon and Zachary were spreading rumors about him, and he told her he wanted to smooth out their relationship. But they had other plans. The night of may 7th 2017 stephanie and tristan met with adam zachary and brandon in las cruces new mexico a 45 minute drive north of el paso the way stephanie described the meeting to el paso police it sounded like they were planning an elaborate sting operation they brought knives a shotgun masks gloves and track phones so they could communicate they assigned each other code names they laid out how they would get into dale's apartment and what roles they would each play in the plot to find Tyler's stash of drugs. Stephanie mapped out Dale's apartment and pointed out which room was Tyler's. Adam would take the shotgun and then military mission style sweep the left side of the apartment while Brandon would take the knife and clear the dining room and front room. Zachary would clear the hallway while armed with a knife and Tristan would cover them all while armed with a BB gun. Stephanie was assigned as the getaway driver. Stephanie told police she waited in the car for 10 minutes before Zachary came out of the apartment, soon followed by the rest of the guys. And as she sped off, they told her how their operation went. Tyler had just gotten out of the shower. He hadn't even dried off before they grabbed him and threw him on the floor. They said Tyler fought back and they struggled to grasp his wet skin. They told Stephanie, Tyler pleaded for his life as they pointed their guns and knives at him. Tyler asked why they were doing this. They wanted his drugs, they told him. They let him go to retrieve his stash, and once Tyler handed it over to them, they all began to fight. Zachary said he stabbed Tyler in the neck, but Tyler didn't die. Instead, he dragged himself along the floor, trying to get away from his attackers. As Adam thrust the shotgun into Tyler's backside and threatened to shoot, Brandon grabbed Tyler and slit his throat. His exact phrasing of what he did, according to Stephanie, was he cut Tyler's head off. It was difficult for me to read the details in Stephanie's story, and the pain was still visible on the faces and in the voices of Tyler's family. Rory Croak, who's now 22, almost looked angry.
4: They were supposed to call us to let us know what happened, and I had to find out that he was brutally murdered um, through a news article with graphic details. It would have been really nice to not have my friend as I'm driving read that article out loud to me. I would have liked to know from, um, someone else in the privacy of my own home,
5: Um,
4: I was 17, having to hear about my brother being stabbed to death.
1: Tyler's mom, Kirsten Croke, fought to hold back tears.
2: So that's just a nightmare in itself. Just learning the way
3: that he died.
2: And I just don't know how people could do something like that to another human being. It just does not make sense. There, you have to be evil and people like that are just irredeemable. There's no, there was no reason for them to take his life the way they did. They were going there to look for drugs. They barely found anything is minuscule, and then they decide to kill him.
1: The family knew Tyler had been using drugs, and they know this detail about him can change how he's perceived. Well,
4: we've been told, too, by people. I've seen comments,
1: you know, oh,
4: just another wash up and stuff, Mm -hmm. which he wasn't, but even if he was, That doesn't mean that he's asking to be murdered. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm a nursing student. I've had to work with addicts, um, too. So even if he was, these are people, they don't choose this. And um, that is not how Ty should be remembered.
1: They want Tyler to be remembered as the oldest of four kids and a new father himself, the one who kept his brothers and sisters in line and urged them to do the right thing. He wasn't the best student in school. His mom thinks he had issues with attention deficit disorder, but he was thoughtful, artistic, and liked by teachers. He'd wanted to learn discipline in the military. Tyler was a good shooter. His dad said his marksmanship was highly regarded when he was in the army. Growing up, he'd been tall and lanky with dirty blonde hair, soft brown eyes, and a shy smile. He started gaining muscle mass in high school. His sister, Rory, told me he earned the nickname Neck because he was so muscular. He just wanted to be the best he could be. He wanted to push himself. His younger brother, Patrick, and his sister, Rory, deeply admire Tyler. I've heard family members talk lovingly about someone they've lost, but there was a parallel in the language these siblings used, even though they weren't sitting together during our interview, they clearly revere their brother
3: losing my brother i think i lost like in some sense like a compass for what um i thought you know a man should be
4: and that's like in a way i even say now like he saved my life like he there is no way i would be doing the things i'm doing now if it wasn't for him
3: he was able to just have such a huge impact on myself and my own motivation, work ethic. And um, I mean, I don't think I could ever reach like the mental strength of him and kind of like the fearlessness he had.
4: And like, that's how he is remembered.
1: The croaks think Tyler got into drugs once he returned to the States from Afghanistan. His parents see his drug use as a way to treat undiagnosed PTSD, physical pain due to injuries sustained in Afghanistan, and
2: insomnia. And he knew that I was not very happy with him at that time. Um, and, and I feel bad about it, but I, you know, I lectured him. But his
3: I, I and I really, think
2: the transition for him was incredibly difficult. He yeah. said everything moved at such a fast a, pace. Yeah, that part. And he was struggling with even driving and right. um, just going being in large crowds and it was it was like and, just one day
0: he was there and the next day he's back and mm-hmm. and he, yes, he wanted to be back and was happy, but at the same time it was a big adjustment.
1: It's clear just from the documents and testimony that Tyler went from microdosing to cope to dealing for cash. And things began to unravel for Tyler in the months leading up to his death. His brother Patrick told me over a Zoom call from his apartment in New York City about a troubling conversation they had the week Tyler was killed.
3: You know, I he had contacted me like that that week, and we had talked. And um, I guess one thing um, he did ask me for he asked if I had this is yeah I blocked this part up, but he asked if um, I could lend him any money.
1: Mm. Was that unusual?
3: And, um. Yeah. I would say so i just told him like i'm you know i can't like i'm saving up for school i don't have a lot you know i just worked as a grocery bagger food line um i mean it didn't like it's not like i was totally shocked or whatever um like i know that i knew that he was um going through like struggle struggles you know getting out of the army um that whole situation and struggles with his PTSD. And I knew he was kind of like on shaky ground trying to get his footing. Um, and But obviously, like, I couldn't, like, I didn't. I was like, I can't really do anything. I know I'm, I'm 18. It all
1: came to a head for Tyler when the Army did a surprise drug test. Tyler tested positive and he was demoted and discharged. His parents told me Tyler had been out of the military for a week, living off post with Dale when he was killed. I'll tell you about the long wait for resolution in this case, and what the family thinks is contributing to the delay. Why the croaks think it goes all the way to the El Paso County Courthouse. Next in Borderland Crimes.
0: OR lights down, music up and just like rock out for a second just because I see blood flow going back into something that didn't have it and it literally is like Frankenstein coming back to life. You see something that was dead for all intents and purposes and it lights up and it's pink. Hear more about this incredible medical procedure that took place at University Medical Center that reattached a man's thumb and saved his love of music. All on the next episode of Better Health in the Borderland, found wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Within two weeks of Tyler's death, El Paso police arrested five people and charged them all with capital murder. All of them were accused of killing someone in the act of committing a robbery. It took almost a year, But finally, the first suspect went to trial in 2018. Stephanie Fernandez had admitted to driving the getaway car for Adam Acosta, Tristan Chilton, Zachary Johnston, and Brandon Olson, but she pleaded not guilty to capital murder. The jury heard her recorded statement to police in which she laid out every detail of that military-like ambush on Tyler in the middle of the night on May 7, 2017. She was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison in March of 2018. She had nothing to say before she was led out of court. Stephanie filed an appeal, but the conviction and sentence were upheld in 2021. She's being held in the Christina Melton Crane Unit, which is less than two hours north of Austin in Gatesville, Texas. Resolution in the case involving the second murder suspect came two and a half years after Tyler's murder. Zachary Johnston is one of the organizers of the military-style ambush on Tyler at the apartment. Prosecutors say he attacked Tyler, wrestled him to the ground, and stabbed him in the throat. In December 2019, Zachary pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of murder. We all saw the former soldier in person for the first time when he walked into the courtroom during his plea hearing and sentencing, and he looked very different from the mugshot that was publicized in May 2017. Gone were his civilian clothing, the short light brown hair and scruffy beard. He emerged from the holding cell into the courtroom, shackled wearing an orange and white striped inmate jumpsuit He was shaved bald, and the word divine was tattooed over his right eyebrow. But those weren't the first things you'd notice. He had two black eyes that were so swollen, his pupils were barely visible. The El Paso Times reported two days before his plea hearing, Zachary had attacked a county detention officer during a cell block check of the jail. Court documents said Zachary yelled at the officer and accused him of coming into his house before swinging a coffee pot at the officer. The sheriff's office didn't say exactly how Zachary got those black eyes, but an incident report obtained by the El Paso Times reporter stated other officers jumped in to restrain Zachary during the fight. He was charged with assaulting an officer, but that case was dismissed in April 2021. Zachary is now serving a life sentence in the Wynn prison unit, which is in Huntsville. However, his guilty plea to the lesser charge of murder included the possibility of parole. The court records show he will be eligible for parole in 2047. It's now been five years since Tyler's murder, and three suspects are still awaiting trial. Adam Acosta, Tristan Chilton, and Brendan Olson. We all know the COVID pandemic held up the courts. Trials only just resumed here in El Paso in April, more than two years after the initial lockdown in March 2020. But these three suspects have been in custody since May 2017. The court dockets for all three show there were jury trials scheduled for each on January 30th, 2019, but they didn't happen. The dockets don't reflect that the trials were rescheduled either. Here's something else to consider. The cases for Zachary, Adam, Tristan, and Brandon are all in the 168th District Court with Judge Marcos Lizarraga presiding. If you listen to this podcast, you may recognize that name. He's the El Paso judge who is now defending himself from allegations of misconduct in another murder trial. I laid out all the details of the investigation by the Texas Commission on Judicial Conduct in the podcast episode on the death of R.J. Franco and the trial of Moises Galvan. I posted that episode on January 24th of 2022 if you want to go back and listen to it. Nearly two dozen complaints were lodged against Judge Lizarraga immediately after he granted a mistrial in that murder case in 2019. He was accused of several things, including showing bias to the defense. Judge Lizarraga has denied all the allegations against him. The executive director of the commission told me the SCJC is in the midst of what's called the proceeding to retire or remove judges. The next step would be to hold a public hearing. That hearing hasn't been scheduled yet, but I was told it might happen this summer. In March, Judge Lizarraga was recused from presiding over the trial of Moises Galvan's murder case. Kirsten Croak was concerned when she read about the investigation into Lizarraga from online news reports. She knows the investigation is related to a separate case, but she worries about anything impeding justice for her son.
2: I think it's time that he should probably step aside um, when there's been so many issues. We certainly don't want to upset him (laughs) if he he does continue on um, and handles Ty's case, but we want to make sure that we have an impartial judge.
1: Kirsten was also alarmed when she heard Judge Lizarraga had retained El Paso defense attorney Jim Darnell to handle his own case before the State Commission on Judicial Conduct. This is what the judge said about that move during a hearing January 11th.
0: I'm going to appoint Mr. Garnell to protect the best interest of the 168th district court in the Moises Galvan murder case. And I will do so without resorting to taxpayer funds to pay him The lawyer to represent the best interests of the 168th District Court will be asked to try and resolve the current legal issues caused by what I've described. If those issues cannot be resolved, the appointed lawyer will probably be asked to file emergency proceedings in the Supreme Court of Texas or in the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals.
1: Kirsten takes issue with the judge appointing Jim Darnell as his attorney because Darnell was court-appointed as Brandon Olson's defense lawyer.
2: That's disturbing. To me, you can't, I, it's unethical. I don't know how he could be impartial if that attorney were to continue on defending that defendant. It makes no sense to me.
4: Well, and it's also, I feel like, unethical to even think that we have to sit here and worry about not making the judge upset. And it's very frustrating that us as victims are
2: scared that we're not going to get justice. We feel victimized all over again, Um, not only with the death of Ty, with the death of Ty, uh, but now with the court system. Um, It's very, very frustrating.
1: I took Kirsten's concerns to Jim Darnell himself. He told me over the phone, his role is to represent Judge Sarraga in his case before the State Commission on Judicial Conduct. I also asked what he plans to do next in Brandon's case. The last move on the docket was a status hearing in October of last year. There isn't any documentation filed to lay out what happened during that hearing.
5: I can't go to trial why? Well, I'm representing Judge Lee Okay. Okay. Because that would create a conflict.
1: Okay. So, in in your view, there wouldn't be a conflict even if his case has been resolved and you go before him as a defense attorney in another case?
5: Well, that would be up to the district attorney's office to decide if they want to raise something. That was... Um, just the advice that has been given on other cases by the uh, Commission on Judicial Conduct. And so that's sort of the way it's always been done.
1: The case with Brendan Olson is kind of at a stalemate. Would that be fair?
5: Not at a stalemate. It's probably at a standstill.
1: Kirsten filed a complaint with the State Bar of Texas about what she thinks is a conflict of interest. She doesn't see how the judge could remain unbiased in Brandon's trial, considering both the judge and Brandon shared the same attorney. Jim Darnell filed a response with the state bar saying the same thing he told me over the phone, that he has, quote, no intention of appearing before Judge Lisaraga at any time while his commission on judicial conduct matter is pending. Like I said, the COVID-19 pandemic did pause thousands of cases pending in El Paso courts for two years. But another likely setback is a transition in the El Paso District Attorney's office. That created a shift in prosecutors. Longtime District Attorney Jaime Esparza retired, and four people ran to replace him. The Democratic primary election in March of 2020 ended with two candidates headed to a runoff. The runoff election was in July 2020 between Ivan Rosales and James Montoya. Ivan Rosales, won. She came from a private practice. James Montoya was an assistant district attorney. In fact, he was the prosecutor in Zachary's case, and he was set to handle the prosecution of Brandon, Tristan and Adam. But he left his position in December of 2020 before Rosales took office on January 1st, 2021. He posted on his Facebook page his opposition to her move to make all 200 office employees and trial attorneys reapply for their positions. That isn't an unusual decision. I mean, her predecessor did the same thing 30 years before. But Montoya said in that statement on Facebook, the office would be approaching a turnover rate of nearly 50 percent. And this would delay the ability to pursue criminal cases in a timely manner. So the Croak family is calling for someone outside the DA's office to take over the case. Do you have any indication from the DA about what's next?
2: No, and we don't know who will be in charge of his case. It's um, moved around a couple of times. Um, We have requested, because of some of the issues in the DA's office, that a special prosecutor be appointed for uh, Ty's case. I know they have a lot on their plate there at the DA's office with the Walmart shooting. Um, That's gonna take up a lot of their time and seasoned lawyers. And we need an experienced prosecuting attorney to prosecute Ty's case. And so we've requested that, but um, we have not received an answer. We hope that they will um, grant us that. I think it's important. And then that would take one more thing off their plate that they don't have to deal with.
1: I learned who was assigned to prosecute Brandon, Tristan and Adam. But when I asked the assistant district attorney, Renee Flores for any updates on the cases, Flores told me he couldn't talk about ongoing litigation. I also asked the district attorney's public information officer about the cases, but he referred me back to Renee Flores, and then didn't return my follow-up call or email. I asked the court-appointed defense attorneys for Tristan and Adam if they anticipate the trials starting up soon. The first response is from Leonard Morales, Tristan's lawyer. Your client has been in jail for almost five years now.
0: Um, it, it has it has lingered a little longer than, than usual, but. Um... No, we want to move it forward um, and and get some resolution on this, but but as far as specifics, I really don't have any for you right now, Stephanie, I'm sorry. Even the district attorney's office, this is not me trying to color uh, the case, Uh, even the DA's office agrees that Adam is one of the less culpable people involved.
1: That is Thomas Hughes, Adam's lawyer. He seemed to think Adam could even get a plea deal down from capital murder.
0: The uh, previous administration uh, was very, uh, they were very stiff-necked about these types of cases.
5: Mm. And the wreck was always 40 or 50 years, which would force you into a trial. Uh,
3: The new administration has shown some willingness to be more uh, flexible
0: on these types of cases and perhaps uh, uh, reduce the wreck Uh, to something that reflects the individual defendant's culpability in the case. Uh, And and as of right now, I don't have, uh, they haven't shown me any
1: flexibility, although I have been told by some of the uh, top people in the current administration that they're they're working on it. Nothing is official. For Kirsten Croke She's dismayed by the idea that any of the suspects in her son's murder could be convicted but be able to leave prison on parole.
2: We didn't want the prosecuting attorneys to offer plea bargains to any of them. All the croaks couldn't believe Zachary
1: Johnston could be released on parole. He's the one who appeared for the sentencing hearing with those swollen black eyes after attacking a jailer. He was one of the three masterminds behind the deadly attack on Tyler, and he drew first blood.
3: I'm surprised, like, they're actually able to make some type of deal. He's not a person. He's just like, he's a rabid animal.
1: Maybe you're thinking, Zachary was convicted. He got a life sentence. He'll have served 28 years before he's even eligible for a parole hearing. But Kirsten's perspective comes from losing her son to violence.
2: We wanted them to go to prison for life without the without parole because we didn't want my children to continue on this fight once they could possibly go out for parole. Yeah,
4: and it's not that I don't want to fight um, for Ty. Um, it's the fact that I do. And it's... You know, really frustrating that when my parents aren't here, um, that that responsibility now is on us. To me, like, nothing's going to bring them back. So it's like, I want justice, but at the same time, like, I'm just trying, you know,
1: to survive from this. And I can't think of them. The Croak family continues to try and heal while the justice system slowly rolls forward. I'll post an update once the cases reach resolution. But in the meantime, I want to thank the Croak family for sharing their stories. You can see pictures of Tyler on the Borderline Crime section of KVIA.com. Borderline Crimes is a podcast researched, produced, and edited by me, Stephanie Valle. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Another episode is coming soon.